go to Children's Church. The rest of you, I'd like you to take your Bibles out and turn to Acts chapter 2. Now, there's no notes today, printed notes for the sermon, but they are available on the app. So if you go to the app, they're available there. But we didn't want to give you so many inserts today, so instead, on the back of the announcement flyer, we have information about the home groups instead of the sermon notes. So we are wrapping up just a short one-month series on the true church. What is the true church to look like? What are some of the ingredients that go into a true church? And I'm going to give you a quick review of where we've been, then I'll read the passage. So if we bring up the clock, this is where we've been. I'm using a clock today to bring about the points that we've learned. We've learned that a true church embraces the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the beginning point of the Christian life. Have you been saved? Are you born again today? Do you know today that if you died, you would go to heaven based upon the work of Jesus, not based upon your works, not based upon religion, not based upon you trying hard, but based upon the work of Jesus. That is how you are born again, brought into the kingdom of God, is embracing the gospel, the work, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Once you do that, then you are to be baptized. A true church celebrates baptism. A true church is devoted to the Word of God. It says they followed the apostles' teaching. Fourth, a true church is engaged in relational connection, not just surface relationships, not just a, hey, how you doing, you know, that kind of thing, real surfacey. No, we're talking about relationships where you encourage one another, you pray for one another, you share concerns with one another. We realize you can't do that with everybody. That's why we are bringing about this vision of home groups. And a small group is the best, safest, best biblical place to share in a way that goes deeper in relationships. Fifth, it partakes of the Lord's Supper. We're going to do that next Sunday, but we also believe that partaking of the Lord's Supper can happen in your personal quiet time, in these home groups. Sixth, a true church prays. The power of prayer. Communicating with the God of the universe. What a privilege. Seventh, a true church experiences the power of God. We believe that signs, wonders, and miracles still happen today. And by the way, next Sunday, don't miss it. I'm going to do a standalone message next Sunday that actually came out of a dream that somebody had on our prophetic team. And I believed in my spirit as soon as that dream was shared, the Lord quickened unto me that I'm going to share a message next Sunday on how to truly get freedom in areas that you have struggled in. What are the biblical principles where we can get set free from things that we have been plagued with? And I'll tell you, one of the missing components of many people in getting set free is, an issue, is the issue of the demonic. And part of signs, wonders, and miracles is some people need to be delivered from demonic spirits. And so we'll unpack that next week. Eight, a true church is radically generous. They're not tied to their material possessions. They freely have received, and they're willing to freely give. Now, a couple things that I want to share just from the past week in the life of our church, just as praises. Because of your faithfulness in giving, we as a church this past week were able to give an additional $3,000 from our missions fund to a ministry in Ethiopia where they are starting a school. We have also this week, under the approval of the elders, put an additional $10,000 against our principal on our $1.3 million loan as a church, because we want to be debt-free. <laughs> Amen. Over the last three months, we have been able to help 36, I'm sorry, 26 individuals from our benevolent fund. 
helping with things such as car repairs, paying utility bills, and giving food. Because we as a church want to be a generous giving church. Number nine, a true church gathers around the table, eats together. And that's what Brooks shared last week. If you missed his message, I encourage you to listen. Great message on the importance of gathering in homes to eat together. All right, now let's stand together as I read Acts chapter 2, beginning at verses 41, and you will see many of the principles that I just shared, but then we have two additional ones that we're going to cover today as we wrap up this series. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who received the word were baptized. So right there you see a couple of them. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And beloved, as I read this, just encourage you, this is what God wants his church to experience then and now, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Praising God, that's what we're going to cover today, and then this final one, and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask you to anoint your word. Apply it to our lives. Make us the church and the individuals that you want us to be. I pray that from this message today, the next Billy Graham might become touched. The next John Deans might emerge. That great things, great fruit, many souls saved for your glory because of what we've learned in your word today. In Jesus' name we pray it and we receive now and expect a mighty move of your spirit. Amen and amen. You may be seated. All right, we're going to cover two final points. First one is this. A true church worships God. In this passage, we see that phrase, and they were praising God. We know from church history that worship has been a huge component of the church since the first century. The worship, the praise of God. We know from the book of Psalms, it says to sing to the Lord. It says to sing to the Lord a new song. Psalm 100 says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to the Lord. Over and over in the Word of God, the Old Testament, they had festivals and feasts in which worship was a huge part. They would gather together in celebration for what God had done and who He was. There are four things that make praise and worship a powerful thing. Number one, praise and worship blesses God. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. I will never forget a statement made by Dr. Charles Stewart, pastor of Watkinsville First Baptist, when I was a college student. And I attended that church back from 1979 to 1983. Never forget this one statement he made one Sunday. He said, If, ever, if only one person comes away from this service with a blessing, then everything's okay. If that person is Jesus. Oh, all of a sudden, it was like, wait, we're not here to get a blessing as much as we are to be a blessing. We're here to, to minister to the Lord. And you and I do that when we gather and we worship Him as we've done this morning. Second, worship attracts the presence of God. Psalm 22, verse 3, in the King James, it says, The Lord inhabits, 
the praises of his people. That word inhabit literally means to live among, to be comfortable among. Are there places today that you're more comfortable being than others? When you go to somebody's house and you've never been there before, you know, you wouldn't take your shoes off and put your shoes up on, put your stinky feet up on their coffee table, would you? No, because you're, you're, you're kind of like a, you're a little bit on guard. But when you go to your place where you're most comfortable to be yourself and you can kind of let it all hang out, well, guess where God is most comfortable? In the atmosphere of praise and worship. It's the atmosphere of heaven. And so if you want to attract God's manifest presence, just enter into praise and worship, whether corporately or individually. Third, here's something else that happens. When God shows up, guess who takes off? Demons. <laughs> it repels demonic spirits. I don't know about you, but I do not like mosquitoes. Do not like them. I used to live in Wisconsin. Mosquito was the state bird. <laughs> I mean, they were everywhere. They bite you and carry you off to glory. There were so many. So what do you do? You put bug repellent on, right? You put on something that keeps them away. Praise and worship causes demons to flee. When God's presence shows up, demonic presence take off. Fourthly, it lifts the human spirit. You leave a service, you come on Sundays, you're kind of down, but you leave and you're like, man, I just feel lifted. I feel encouraged. Or when you're discouraged and maybe you choose to put on some praise and worship in your car as you're driving and all of a sudden you feel your human spirit kind of lifting. Well, that's because God made it to work that way. You and I were designed to worship God. You and I were created to praise God. And when you put praise on, <laughs> it lifts the human spirit. And there's a principle in Hebrews. Listen, it talks about the sacrifice of praise. Sometimes praise requires sacrifice. You do it because he's worthy even if you don't feel like it. And that's a sacrifice to do. But when you do, man, it's like trying to get water out of a, a well. You've got to prime the pump. And you sometimes have to just put some effort in. And then all of a sudden the water starts gushing out. Praise and worship does that. We as a church value praise and worship extremely high, extremely high. And I'm so thankful for Dustin Sosby, our new worship pastor. So thankful for the men and women who put in time and effort every week. I told Garrett this morning, I said, brother, I have prayed for two years, I have, for this instrument. I have so desired a violin in our worship. And I said, Garrett, you're an answer to prayer. Amen. All right, the final point, and this is where we'll spend the most of our time today. True church reaches out to the lost. Outreach. And let me just say this. Look at this clock. Outreach is the battery for the clock to keep ticking. How easy it would have been. Look at all these other ingredients. How easy it would have been for the early church to just kind of become a holy huddle, to become ingrown. You know what, man? We are loving the gospel. We are saved by the blood of Jesus. We are celebrating baptisms. We're getting together in homes. We're eating together. We are praying together. We're experiencing the power of God. We're helping meet each other's needs. How easy they could have become a commune. And just been off to themselves and say, you know, let the wicked old sinful world kind of go to, you know what, in a handbasket. 
But they didn't. They didn't. They didn't become ingrown. They didn't forget where they had come from. Somebody shared the gospel with you if you're saved today. You need to thank God right now for that church or that ministry or that book or that person or that loved one who prayed you into the kingdom, persevered, shared with you. Because what they were to you, God now calls you to be for somebody else. It says in this passage, the Lord added to their number. I love that little phrase because it combines the sovereignty of God with the responsibility of man. The sovereignty of God. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. (laughs) We plant, we water, but who causes the growth? God. He causes the growth. He births conversion, but he uses us as his hands and his feet. 2 Corinthians 5 says we are his ambassadors. As though God were entreating through us. He could drop tracks from heaven all across the world today and everybody gets saved. He could. He could. Nothing's impossible with him, right? All of a sudden, from the clouds, float. The no God personally booklet. It lands. The guy reads it, gets born again, radically saved. God could do that. With him, nothing's impossible. Now, he is doing things like giving Muslims dreams today. This is exciting. Signs and wonders for the purpose of evangelism. Muslims all over the world are reporting, having dreams about Jesus being the true Messiah and getting radically saved. It's awesome. And we pray for that. And we'll see a prayer in Acts 4 that shows the the biblical basis for signs and wonders for that purpose. At the same time, it's not an either or, it's a both and. His primary way of reaching lost people is using you and me as his hands and his feet and his instruments. And so we're going to see that today in this passage. The disciples didn't forget that he said, go into all the world and make disciples. The disciples didn't forget what he said in Acts 1 and 8, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall what? Be my witnesses. They didn't forget that Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. They didn't forget that Jesus said, I send you out as lambs among wolves. And what you have in the rest of the book of Acts is this increasing projection and progress of the gospel. The whole book of Acts is about the gospel going to new places, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And then they begin to take missionary journeys, and it begins to go into Rome. And there's just increasing influence of the gospel touching lives and it's happening today as well. And you and I have the responsibility, but also the great privilege of being the hands and feet of Jesus. Instruments of the gospel. What greater privilege could there be than to be in heaven and have people come up to you and say, thank you. Thank you for praying for me. Thank you for giving financially for that missionary to come to my country. Thank you for taking the time to share your testimony with me. Thank you for going to the great exchange that day, and I was that student who took that survey, and I blew you off. And I said, you're an idiot for believing this. Two years later, I went through a very difficult time in my life, and that little pamphlet you gave me, I pulled it out of my dorm room drawer. And I reread it, and the Holy Spirit spoke to me, and I got radically saved. Let me introduce you to my Christian wife, my Christian children, 
my Christian grandchildren. I took on a small group in my church. Let me introduce you to the people in that small group that were touched by the gospel and discipled because you talked to me that one day. And you planted that seed. And I know you probably went home discouraged because I blew you off. And I flipped you off. But you still love me. You still pray for me. Folks, is there any greater privilege in the world than to have any influence on others? What a great privilege we have. So I want to just give you a few examples. First of all, in chapter 3, the very next passage, what happens after they, after they experience these things that we see in Acts 2, the passage we read? Well, in chapter 3, Peter and John are going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. There's a lame man there, and they look, he's begging for money. And they say, silver and gold I don't have, but what I have I give to you. What do they have? The active presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Get up and walk. And the guy's healed. What did they do next? Did they start a healing crusade? Did they write a book on healing? Again, I'm not against any of that, but they didn't do that. Instead, what we see is they preach the gospel. Peter goes on and says, look, I want to tell you, the, the one who did this is the, is the author of, of the universe. And they preach the gospel. And in the rest of Acts 3, they preach the gospel. So a guy gets healed, they preach the gospel. Then in chapter 4, what happens? Opposition from the religious leaders. They didn't like this. So in chapter 4, you have opposition from the religious leaders. And then what does it say in Acts 4, 8? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, now look at this, whom you crucified. That's pretty bold. By the way, he appeals to the first-hand knowledge of the listener about the resurrection of Jesus. This is a great historical intellectual evidence for the reliability of the resurrection. Because if Christ didn't really rise, all the skeptics of the day had to do was parade the dead body of Jesus down the streets of Jerusalem, and Christianity would have died in her cradle. But it didn't happen. Not only does he appeal to the knowledge of the listeners, but he says, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then verse 12, and this is huge, so don't tune out here. And there is salvation in no one else. That's a pretty bold claim. And there is no other name, that includes Muhammad, that includes Hare Krishna, that includes any other name or any other religion or any other founder, Sung Young Moon, Joseph Smith, no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. What they do here is incredibly important in our discussion today. Peter appeals to the exclusivity of Jesus for salvation. Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. When I share with people about the exclusivity of Jesus for salvation, there is salvation in no other name, I will usually say, look, I didn't make this claim. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. He's the one who claimed it. I didn't write this book. <laughs> and in 2 Timothy 1, it says that 
there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So when it comes to this topic of evangelism and the importance of sharing our faith and the importance of being an outreaching church and never getting inclusive or exclusive in the sense of a holy huddle, the exclusivity of Jesus for salvation is incredibly important in this discussion. So I want to give you five reasons why Jesus is the only way to God. First of all, because sin separates us from God. The Bible says that all of sin and come short of the glory of God. Isaiah 59 says that your sins have separated you from God. Secondly, our works cannot bridge that gap. The works that we do are insufficient to erase the sin stain. There is a stain called sin in the spirit of every person that cannot be erased or removed by good works, religion, benevolence, or anything on our part. And if you compare Christianity to all other religions, all other religions are ultimately a works approach to get right with God. It is you doing something that will somehow make God accept you. Christianity has nothing to do with our works. It has everything to do with the work of Jesus. Christianity is not spelled do, it's spelled done. <laughs> Jesus did it all. Hallelujah. And so the third reason is that the, a perfect payment was required on God's part. Because God is holy and just, a perfect payment is required to remove sin. In the Old Testament, it was always the perfect lamb that had to be sacrificed. Fourth, shed blood is the only remedy. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So now, with number three and number four, you see, and listen closely, the deity and the humanity of Jesus being essential for salvation. He had to be fully God to be the perfect sacrifice. And he had to be fully man to shed blood. Thus Jesus is fully God and fully man, which is fully necessary for full atonement. He was fully God and fully man, which was fully necessary for full atonement. You see now why the deity and the humanity of Christ is so essential to salvation. It's not just something we celebrate at Christmas one time a year. It is at the core of the gospel. It is essential for salvation. Jesus Christ had to be fully God and fully man to be our full Savior. Hallelujah. And because of that, number five, justice is met and love is expressed. The holy justice of God, which people don't like to talk about today. They don't like to talk about the wrath of God. Well, God's loving. Yes, he is. And he's also holy. And his wrath is important. And his wrath comes against sin. And his wrath is coming against sin in future judgment for all who don't receive Christ. You may not like that. You may have a hard time understanding that. But that is what the Bible says. And so in Romans 5.8, we love to quote Romans 5.8, don't we? God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The next verse talks about being saved from the wrath of God. Why? Because Christ bore his wrath. That's why he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because at that moment he was separated from God, bearing to, for, upon himself what we deserve, eternal separation. But Jesus bore that wrath and his love was expressed. Full deity, full humanity for full atonement. Hallelujah. So do you understand a little bit better, hopefully, why Jesus is the only way to God? Essentially, it's the only means whereby we can be forgiven. And that is why, beloved, we must take this good news to those who are not saved. All right, then what happens in chapter 4, verse 18? After preaching the exclusivity of Jesus 
And it's interesting that times don't change much. (laughs) In 4.18, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They're given a gag order. Look, keep your religion to yourself. Fine and dandy, y'all do that stuff in church. But don't you bring that here. Don't you be bringing that Jesus stuff here. Don't share Christ here. You just keep it in your little church thing. You ever hear that? Or better yet, oh, this is a good one. Get ready. Separation of church and state. I can't bring that here. Separation of church and state. By the way, let me clarify this. A little historical lesson. The separation of church and state was to keep the state out of the church, not the church out of the state. It was said, Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter to the Dansby, the Danbury Baptist because they were concerned that the government was going to come in and start restricting their freedom of expression. And he said, no, you have nothing to worry about. Separation of church and state. The, church, the state will stay out of your affairs. They're not going to keep you from worshiping God freely. It was never intended to keep the church out of the state, but the state out of the church. And if you want proof of that, look at the founding fathers. And there are many quotes about the Bible, Christianity, starting their meetings in prayer, and so forth and so on. But that's a whole other discussion. So what do they do in, in response to this gag order? Verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Whoa. Jesus has made such a difference in our lives. Jesus has transformed us. Jesus has set us free. Jesus has forgiven our sins and showed us his incredible love and grace. Jesus, we now know, is the only way to a personal relationship with God. He shed his blood that all might come to know him if they but will repent and believe on him. We can't keep quiet about this good news. Listen, how many of you know somebody who's died of cancer? How many of you know somebody who's died of cancer? Raise your hand high, high. Yeah, look at this, guys. What a terrible thing cancer is. If you've ever lost somebody to cancer, it's just a terrible thing. If today you are given the cure for cancer, you and you alone had the cure, and it could basically heal anybody of any type of cancer, what would you do with it? Would you just sit and keep it to yourself? No way, Jose. (laughs) Man, you'd be posting that solution everywhere imaginable. Social media. You'd go to every hospital, share with every doctor, go to the CDC, whatever. Would you not? Beloved, we have the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Eternal solution for sin. Eternal life. Okay, somebody gets healed of cancer. Hallelujah be to God. They're still going to die of something. And they're going to have to stand before the Lord of the universe and give an account. So that cure for cancer, as good as it is, is nothing in comparison to the cure for eternal cancer called sin and death and hell. And God has given us the privilege of having that cure in the gospel. One more thing. Again, there's so many examples here. But I I do want to bring attention to this prayer they pray at the end of chapter 4. Because it's, I believe it's so significant, and I believe it's a prayer that 
I'm committing today to praying this on a more regular basis. I encourage us all to pray this on a daily basis. In chapter 4, verse 28, again, they're told not to preach. And just, just um, let's go up to uh, verse 27. Chapter 4, verse 27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of the Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So I love that. Just the sovereignty of God in salvation. Yeah, you guys killed him. Yeah, you guys put him to death. But you know what? God sovereignly predestined that anyway. Because <laughs> it was his eternal plan to bring salvation. But then verse 29. Here's their prayer. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Whoa. So in response to this gag order, in response to persecution, basically, and it's going to intensify as you move across the book of Acts, what do they pray for? They pray for boldness. To speak the word of God with boldness while you, and here's an interesting phrase, stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Read my track in the back called Signs and Wonders Then and Now? Question mark. I've tracked the whole movement of miracle signs and wonders throughout the book of Acts and proven clearly that the main purpose of signs and wonders in the book of Acts is to bring unbelievers to faith in Christ. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, filled with the Spirit. We saw in 4.8, Peter filled with the Spirit, and what did he do? Preached. Filled with the Spirit here, what do they do? Continue to speak the Word of God with boldness. <laughs> so I believe in tongues. I believe in all that. But if you make tongues the, initial, the, the all in all evidence of being filled, I would challenge you, when's the last time you've led somebody to Christ? When's the last time you've shared your faith? Again, I'm not, I'm not anti-tongues. I speak in tongues. But if you make tongues the, the, the initial evidence of, of being filled with the Spirit, I would say there's greater evidence that being filled with the Spirit should result in evangelism. Much more than tongues. And the problem in many charismatic circles today is it's all about me. It's all about me and my experience and my emotions and my tongues. And, and it gets very ingrown. It's very easy to happen. And again, I'm not against any of that. I believe in all of that. But I think it's important that the filling of the Spirit here we've seen twice. When Peter was filled and when they were filled, it resulted in boldness to proclaim the gospel. So just be careful, beloved. Be careful when you seek signs, wonders, and miracles. And go to the next meeting, and go to the next meeting, and go to the next healing crusade, and go to the next place where there, there's manifestations of the Spirit. Again, I'm not against any of that. But it is so easy, and I've seen it over and over and over in church history. The advantage of being 61 and being part of the modern charismatic movement in the 70s. And then the, the, the third wave, and the Pensacola, and the Toronto blessing. I went to all those places. Because I wanted all that God had. But I've seen those things begin to get very... in ingrown and it's about me and my needs and getting another high and getting another miracle having another emotional experience when did you last share the gospel that's what i want to say to some of those people and if they are hallelujah and at pensacola they did i lived with a guy for five days he was on the he was leading a lot of people to christ so it's not an either or it's a both and it's being filled to share the good news with those who don't know him so again, the rest of the book of Acts is this increasing influence of the gospel to touch people and groups. And in chapter 8, they get persecuted, and that forces them to go to Judea and Samaria. And then you see Paul going to Rome. 
You see, P, you see uh, Philip getting, or Stephen getting stoned. Difficulty leading to the greater advancement of the gospel. And then I love in, in chapter 8, verse 26, you see personal evangelism. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, just one-on-one sharing with that guy. And so as we come full circle now, let's bring back the clock again. Again, if you don't have outreach, the clock can easily stop ticking. Outreach is the battery that keeps the clock ticking. Because when a person gets saved, when a person does get saved at, let's say, 12 o'clock, then they need to begin to go around the clock by being baptized, by getting deepened in the Word, by getting connected in relationships, by participating in the Lord's Supper and prayer and experiencing the power of God and generosity and eating and worship. And what do we call this whole clock? Here it is, discipleship. (laughs) It's the discipleship clock. If you want to know what discipleship is, that's it. It's this clock continually going around and around and around. Because disciples make disciples. That's our goal for 2022. Be one, make one. It's not just be one. Me growing, me getting this and that and the other. No, it's be one, make one. Because discipleship is all about multiplication. Seeing others brought into the faith. Others growing. Others going deeper. And that's what we want to see in our home groups. That's why our home groups are very intentional to have an outreach piece. It's one thing to meet in these homes and have a great experience together. But we want to make sure that every home group is intentional about outreach. So I want you to watch now an edited home group video. It's got one piece different than last week. See if you notice where it is. But in this video, I want you to watch, four-minute video. It's got another testimony dealing with outreach. Hey, everybody. I'm so excited about our home groups at Living Hope Church. I really believe this could be the most transformative thing we've ever done in the history of our church. Listen now for more information about the home groups, a few testimonies from people who have been in one, and then sign up on our mobile app. Hey, I'm the director of home groups here at the church. I'm really excited to just share a vision for home groups with you guys. Um, Essentially, a home group is a group of people who live in the same part of Athens or any surrounding area. They live near one another, and they come together every week or every other week uh, to share a meal, to pray for one another, care for one another, and eventually to live on mission with each other in their part of the city. Um, We're really excited for these groups because when the body of Christ comes together and lives everyday life with each other, not just on Sunday mornings, um, but throughout the week, we see the body come alive together. And we see the body be the brothers and sisters that God has called us to be as his sons and daughters. We're really excited about this. We have been a part of uh, home groups for over three years. And it has been so exciting to meet new people in our community and then to grow in the word, grow in prayer, grow in fellowship. We help each other out if we're moving or if we need a meal if someone's sick. It has just been a blessing to our lives and those who have been in our home groups. 
allowing us to grow together uh, more intimately and sharing maybe even some of our uh, intimate thoughts and, and problems and struggles that we have in life. It's a safe place that you can be, uh, you can be real and authentic in relationship. And uh, what a tremendous blessing that is. You need to be in a small group. My name's Andy Hines, and uh, my wife Julia and I attend the Lisa Chambers Home Fellowship. Um, it's been a great experience. Uh, we have good teaching. We have good food. We have a lot of fun. And uh, it is something that we look forward to every other week. Well, actually, the first and third uh, Mondays of the month tremendous time of fellowship. I recommend to anyone that they need to get into one because it's where the church happens is in the small groups. My husband and I have been in a home group for the past year and it has been impactful and our favorite part of being a part of Living Hope Church so far. We've gotten to pray with and for each other, to encourage each other and also to really focus on the missional aspect of the church and we've been serving at a local homeless shelter and gotten to pray with and over some people and um, just seeing Christ at work in Athens has been special and unforgettable. We've been a part of a home group now for the past couple of years with other couples and families from Living Hope. There's been several things that have really benefited us, but one thing that comes to mind is our kids have really enjoyed playing together with the other kids from other families. And they almost always leave saying, we want to stay longer, or we can't wait till the next time we get together. Similarly, when we get together, we always have a meal. And during those meals, we'll talk about the struggles we're facing as parents and uh, as married couples, and we'll just sharpen one another very organically through conversation that just happens over food. The other thing that comes to mind is just the fact that we challenge one another to believe God for really big things. Specifically, there's been a couple of people who have trusted God for uh, new jobs and, and known that he's been leading, but not necessarily knowing when those jobs are going to come up and, and how much they're going to get paid for those and have leapt out in faith and even waited for the Lord to provide. So it's been so cool to see the Lord do what we has felt, have felt like has been the impossible. I want to just conclude today by taking five minutes and just give you some practical pointers in effective outreach. Number one is prayer. You pray for lost people. You bind the powers of darkness that hold the unbelievers blinded to the gospel. You pray for the release of God's spirit to draw people to salvation. We encourage everybody in the church to have a top ten list. Ten people that you know or who you have interaction with that are not saved, that you pray for on a regular basis, for God to move, for God to give you opportunities to share. Number two, your personal testimony. I encourage every believer to have their testimony, able to share it in two minutes or less, to uh, have it written out, memorized, and a good testimony has three pieces. Life before you got saved, how you got saved, and the difference Christ has made in your life. You have that ready and prepared at all times. Here's why. Because a person with a testimony is never at the mercy to a person with an argument. They can have all the arguments in the world, but they cannot refute your personal experience. Number three, asking good questions. Rich talked about this in the ministry moment today. If you died today, do you know where you'd spend eternity? Who, in your opinion, is Jesus Christ? What's your spiritual background? Do you ever think about spiritual things? 
And here's the big one. If you died today and stood before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And if that person gives an answer based on what they've done, you know, in fact, right there, they don't understand the gospel and they're probably not saved. And 99% of the people you ask will give you a works answer. How would you answer that today? Are you trusting in the work of Christ for your salvation or are you trusting in your good works and effort? Today, you can be radically born again, saved, forgiven of your sins if you put your faith and trust in Christ and abandon trusting in your own good works. And then the great question to ask at the very end, if you go through these questions, if you could know God personally, would you be interested? And if they say yes, then you take out a little booklet like this. We have a bunch of them in the lobby. Grab them. You need to always have something like this on hand where you could just walk them through the good news of the gospel of Jesus. God loves you. We are sinful. Christ died for your sins. You must receive Christ. Learning to draw out the bridge diagram is another great way, and that's given that diagram in this little booklet. Number four, the great exchange. That is simply doing what we heard about today. That's an event that allows you an opportunity to share with others. Going to the streets. Every Friday night, we have a team that goes downtown Athens. It doesn't mean that you have to preach on the street corner, but often there's a whiteboard with questions people put, and that allows personal dialogue and interaction. Also, number six is inviting somebody to church. Sometimes we forget how simple but effective it can be just to invite somebody to come to church with you, and that can open up a whole discussion. What did you think of the message? Where are you at spiritually? Do you have any questions? See, questions are such an important way to evangelize because you're, 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 you're valuing their opinion. People love to be asked questions. People love to give their opinions. Jesus asked so many questions in his ministry. Number seven, using literature or podcasts or movies or, hey, would you be willing to watch this, uh, this uh, season of, of, Cho of The Chosen or this episode of The Chosen? Engaging people through some of the things that are available today. Just this week, one of the interns at Wesley was telling me about a friend of his father's who's Jewish. And this man has started attending a church. He's not sure why or how. But this Jewish man is starting to attend a church, and I shared with him, hey, a, a good resource to give to that Jewish man is more than a carpenter. It gives the historical basis for Jesus being the Son of God. And so using tools like that can be so helpful. And then finally, number eight is signs. And by that I mean where you actually, and I know this is bold, and I've only done it a handful of times. I'm embarrassed to say I, I'm, I want God to give me greater boldness to do this. You're praying for God to give signs, wonders, and miracles in the life of the unbeliever. So you know an unbeliever who's maybe sick or has a disease or has a struggle and you literally pray for them to experience the power of God. This is again what we're seeing with many Muslims having dreams today. But this is the primary purpose of signs, wonders, and miracles and acts is to bring unbelievers to faith in Christ. These are just eight practical ways that you can put into practice what we've talked about today. Listen, beloved, our topic today is of eternal importance. Eternal importance. The potential for personal impact and eternal fruit is awesome today. And so I want to ask that we all stand right now. And I'm going to issue a call right now. And listen, if I, if I were not on the stage, I would be the first to come down for this. Because I'm going to ask right now that if you would like God to give you greater compassion for lost people, 
increased in boldness. That doesn't mean you're preaching on the street corner. That doesn't mean that you're going to be obnoxious or rude. That's not what I mean by bold. Some of us, boldness just means you're willing to start a spiritual conversation. And in the past, you've been fearful, but now you're going to be willing because God's going to give you that beginning today. Greater compassion for lost people, increased in boldness, and we're also asking that the Holy Spirit will fill you today in such a way that even signs, wonders, and miracles might start taking place through your life, exactly in accordance with the prayer in Acts 4, 29 to 31. If today you would say, if the worship team would come up, if today you would say, I want God to give me greater compassion, increase in boldness, and the filling of the Spirit for signs and wonders, I'm just going to invite you to come down front right now and just, I'm just going to pray over you and then I'll give you some other instructions. Father, we thank you now. I pray that you would move upon your people. Lord, thank you for the hunger in your people. And I even believe right now you are delighted in seeing your people respond. God, I believe that this brings a smile to your face. Come closer to the front to allow room for others if you would. I believe, Lord, this delights your heart today, knowing that your people are saying, I am willing. I want to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And so I just want to encourage you right now, before I even pray for you, just in a fresh way in your own heart, just surrender afresh to the Lord. And even say to God, God, I'm willing to go where you say and do what you will. Just say to the Lord that you are willing to be his hands and feet his ambassadors. And listen, you, have, you can have fears, you can have trepidation, you can have all those human barriers. We all have it. But we're yielding that to the Lord today. And we're saying, God, even use me, a weak, frail vessel. I'm willing. I believe so much God is more concerned about your availability than your ability. And so now, Lord, you see your people. You see their hearts. And I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus that for every person who's come forward today, you would increase their compassion, that they would begin to see the lost as you see them, that they would begin to be led of your spirit as never before, that you would open up doors of opportunity as never before. God, I ask that you would give them a holy, appropriate, situation by situation, boldness open their mouths and be used of you. And now, God, in the name of the Lord Jesus, I pray for a fresh impartation of your spirit that signs, wonders, and miracles would flow in them and through their hands for your glory, Lord. So we pray for compassion. We pray for boldness. And I pray for signs, wonders, and miracles. I pray for a fresh baptism and filling of your Holy Spirit upon your people today for the purpose of evangelism and outreach, and it be for your glory, Lord. Some of you may want to just stay here at the front and kneel and pray. Others of you may want to go to our wall of compassion. There's markers over there. You may want to write the names of unsaved people that you're praying for. I'm going to ask our prayer team to be available at the sides and the corners over here. And so if you would like prayer one-on-one -on -one with somebody, I invite you just to go to those on the prayer team.
going to give you about a minute to, to just make your way to where you need to go. Some of you to the wall of compassion. Some of you to get prayer from somebody on the prayer team. Others of you may just want to stay here and kneel at the steps and just pray, cry out to God. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, we just pray. Have your will now, Lord. Holy Spirit, we invite you just to move across the room, Lord, touching lives. We pray for words of knowledge and wisdom, Lord. God, I pray for a spirit of intercession. Oh, Holy Spirit, come. Fill us to be your hands and feet. We welcome you, Lord. We welcome you, Lord. We welcome you, Lord. 